Thank you, uh, Jake, for reading for us this morning. Um, if you want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Samuel 16. We're going to be continuing in the life of David. I know that this is Thanksgiving weekend and that uh, I'm supposed to do a Thanksgiving weekend sermon. Um, but for those of you that have been around for a while, I'm not very good at that. Uh, I don't do holidays well. And if you start doing them, then you're like trying to write like the 14th Mother's Day sermon. And that just is weird. For Mother's Day is really important, but... It's just, anyway, so we're going to keep following the life of David, uh, because I think that that's important as well, and I think that uh, it's going to guide us a little bit in what we ought to be thinking about Thanksgiving as well. So we're looking at the life of David, uh, a man after God's own heart, and and, and we're going to be, what we're going to be talking about this week is from the Lord, what comes from the Lord. And last week we told, uh, I read two different stories from 1 Samuel 16. Um, one of which was very famous, the story of David, uh, sorry, 1 Samuel 17. That's the story of David and Goliath. Very famous. We all know that story. Uh, and then the story that precedes it, which is, which is a very strange little story, uh, about, about, uh, Saul after the Spirit of God leaves him. He's, he's afflicted by another spirit. And then David comes into his, uh, to his court to, to play music for him and make him feel better whenever he's afflicted by the Lord. And, and, and that's not a story that anybody ever tells. It's just, it's in the Bible, but we just sort of skip over it because it's kind of weird. And, uh, and, and I've never heard, I've been in church my entire life almost, and, uh, and I've never heard a sermon on that passage. And so there's a part of that that makes like the, 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 the eight-year-old kid in me, like, as I'm reading through the Bible and be like, you just skipped over a chunk. Why are, you know, that makes that part in me, like, light up. And it also makes, like, the arrogant pastor in me light up because it's like, I can take that on. Nobody else is doing that. I'm going to do that. Um, so in this weird little story, I want us to have in our minds before we get that, um, I went to, uh, the first church I worked at, uh, they, they used to do this thing, which I had never seen before I got there, but, but, but somebody who was standing up here would lead things and they would say, God is good. And you all would respond by saying all the time. So let's try that. God is good. And then I would go all the time. Right. Which, and that was first time. And that's a good and, and fine thing to do, but it always felt kind of weird. Cause it's like, really? Cause I turned around and I knew the lives of the people around me. And I was like, we're just echoing these words, but I know that some people around me are having a very difficult time saying that, that there, that there's things that they're confronting in their lives that, that are making it hard for them to say God is good all the time. And, and, and I know that I had experienced times in my life in the past where I was like, really, really is God good? God's good. Like family members are sick. God is good now. Like nobody knows where the money's coming from. God is good now. And and it was a frustrating thing to deal with. And I think that this story leads us into those kinds of questions. Because in 1 Samuel 16, it says this, Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's attendants said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to, te- to search for someone who can play the lyre. The lyre was a, uh, we don't really know exactly what it is. We think it's a harp-like instrument, uh, except that we're pretty confident that uh, the Old Testament version of this was played with a pick, which makes it guitar-ish. Anyway, um, sorry, nerding out. Uh, he will play uh, when the evil spirit from God comes on you and you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I have seen the son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a, and is a fine looking man and the Lord is with him. 
And then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David, who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them with his son David to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor bearers. And then Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. And whenever the Spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. And then the relief would come to Saul, and he would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. And what makes this story frustrating, and what should cause all of us to go like, eh, what's going on there? The record scratch stop is this thing, that an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Unless we be confused and say, well, this is just a one-off, maybe it's a translation issue, it, it repeats it later on. Whenever the Spirit from God came on Saul, he would be tormented. It makes it quite clear. And the reality is, is, this, is this is not what we like. This is an uncomfortable thing to see in Scripture. So, so the, people like me want to get rid of this stuff as quickly as possible. And one of the ways that they try to do it is, is, is through translation. They, you know, there's, uh, the newest NIV translation takes this evil spirit and it, uh, and it translated as harmful spirit, which is, okay. Uh, the word there in Hebrew is ra'ah. And, and it does translate as evil. It also translates as mischief. It translates as hurt or hurtful. We can't, tr- but, but the reality is it still doesn't matter. This is still a spirit from the Lord that was causing Saul pain. So we can't translate our way out of this issue. And it forces us to ask uncomfortable questions and that demand answers. Because it's very easy for us to say, of course God is good. It's very easy for some of us to sit here and say, God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. It's very easy for some of us to, to look back on our history and say, like, yes, this is where God has walked beside me. This is where God has carried me. This is, this is where I saw only one set of footprints, and we feel very comfortable saying that out loud. And, the, and, 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 and to say things like, of course, God is only good all the time. And, 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 and to repeat verses that are life-giving, that all things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his service. But the reality is I've sat with people whose child is still sick. I've sat with people whose spouses are, are, are unable to forgive them. I've sat with, with, with people uh, who, who have made mistakes in the past and are desperately trying to change, and then evil people around them will not allow them to change. And if we're going to have a faith that matters in this world, if we're going to have a faith that is actually a help and a blessing to the world around us, if we're going to have a faith that matters to us, then we're going to have a faith that does not only work when it's easy, we're going to have to have a faith that works when it's difficult. We're going to have to have a faith that, that, that works and answers these uncomfortable questions that we would rather not have. One of them being, does God send evil spirits to torment people? This is a real question that the text is asking, and we need to have an answer for it. Does God punish us for sin in this life? And if he does, how does he do that? That's a question that we ought to have an answer for. And finally, the most basic question, the foundational question that underlies all of these things, when, when, when kids are sick and when I don't know where the money is coming from and when I'm scared and I'm alone and it feels like everyone is rejecting me and everything in the world is turned against me, is God good? And if we can't answer that question in a way that makes sense to hurting people, then we don't have a faith that can bless the world. So we're going to try and do that today. So does God send evil spirits to torment people? Sometimes. Um, 
And you should be uncomfortable with that. But the wording here certainly seems to point out that at this point, God did send an evil spirit to torment Saul. Now, what the reason why I say sometimes is because I've looked at this all throughout the Old Testament, and numerous times it talks about the Spirit from the Lord coming upon someone. But normally the Spirit of the Lord comes upon someone to enable them to do something that God has called them to do. So, so we see that with Isaiah. We see that with uh, Samson, that, that when the Spirit of the Lord comes on him in strength, and he is able to use his strength to defeat the Philistines. We see the, the Spirit of the Lord come on Isaiah, and he's able to, to declare the good news to the poor. We, we spe- see the, the, the Spirit of the Lord come on, on Jeremiah, and he's able to speak words of truth to those in power who would rather he shut up. That's what happens when the Spirit of the Lord comes on someone. And this is the only case where we see a, a, a spirit from the Lord come on someone to do evil. Um, and Saul is the only person that it happens to. But I think what will help us in understanding this a little bit better is the next time it's used. Because this is twice that, that God sends an evil spirit to torment Saul. And in light of this evil spirit that torments Saul, David comes into his service and brings him relief. And then the next time it happens is this. Once more war broke out, this is in First Samuel 19. And David went out and fought the Philistines, and he struck them with such force that they fled before him. But an evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in his house with a spear in his hand. And while David was playing the lyre, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear. But David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. And that night, David made good on his escape. And... So in this instance, it seems that this evil spirit coming from the Lord has less to do with Saul than it has to do with David. And that this story becomes more than God using an evil spirit to torment Saul. This story becomes more about using Saul to form David. Because as much as this is hard for us to grasp sometimes, David doesn't come into the service of uh, of Saul fully formed. He's not completely who he is going to be as the boy giant killer. He's not that yet. And, and God is bringing him out to raise him, not just to be a young giant killer boy wonder, but also to be king of the whole nation. And part of forming David into who God wants him to be is to put him through the school of Saul. And the school of Saul is to have his life affected and and formed by someone who is crazy, someone who is a potentially evil and and murderous lunatic who in turn loves him deeply but then also tries to kill him. So what we're seeing when the spirit, this evil spirit comes from the Lord, I believe is more like when God hardens the heart of Pharaoh. If we understand the know the story from Exodus when when uh when the, the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt, um Moses says, let my people go. And, and, and the Bible says very clearly that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That there was something important about the story that needed to be told to form the people of Israel into the people that they were going to be. That they needed to face this opposition. So God is at this point using the hurt, the evil, the ra'ah, the mischief of the world to bring about his greater good and his greater glory. And it's uncomfortable, but I believe that it's occasionally true. So the unfortunate answer is, does God send evil spirits to torment? I think the answer is sometimes it's happened in the past. However, let's dig a little, whenever I, someone has come to me and said this, let's dig a little bit deeper because the question that they're really asking is not, does God send evil spirits to torment all people? He's asking, has God sent an evil tor- spirit to torment me? 
Is the hurt that I'm feeling punishment coming directly from the Lord? And this is a question that I've had asked to me personally. Like I've had someone say these exact words to me. And, and my very confident answer to that question is no. Because the fact that you're asking the question, is this a spirit from the Lord coming to hurt me, demonstrates to me that the Lord is working in your life. And that wouldn't be happening if an evil spirit of the Lord was, was coming just to torment you. God is using this experience of hurt and frustration and opposition and pain to form you. And in that, you turn towards him. Now, that doesn't guarantee that it's going to get easy quickly. It doesn't mean that it's going to stop hurting right away. But we believe firmly that God is with us and not against us and that our suffering is for our maturity. So I can believe that we, I can, very, we can very confidently say, no, God has not sent an evil spirit to torment you. But this is, becomes an interesting question because does God punish us for sin in this life? I know lots of people that say, I've done a whole lot of terrible things and now my life is terrible now and I think it's because God is punishing me for the things that I did in the past. Is that the way that the Lord works? And I'm leaving out any kind of future stuff right now. That's, we'll deal with that when the time comes. I'm just talking about in this life, on my day to day. When, when, when my, when my boss keeps being a jerk to me, is that because the Lord is punishing me? When my spouse will not forgive me, is that because the Lord is punishing me? When, when a stranger only defines me by things that I've done in the past, is that God opposing me? Am I experiencing punishment? And I would say, no. I, I wanna, and I would say no for one, uh, reason. Because the punishment for sin, the Bible is quite clear, has already been completely laid upon Jesus. This is what it says in 1 Peter 2. If you suffer for being good and endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and deceit was found, and sorry, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. The punishment for our sins has been placed on Jesus, and we do not bear it. We do not believe in karma. Okay? We do not believe that I've stored up all of this, this, this anger. I've stored up all of this hatred. I've stored up all of this bad feeling. And now that is coming back against me because I have built it up. We, we don't believe that that is what happens in this world. And, and for this very basic reason that there's too many evil people having good things happen to them, right? If you're being punished for bad things being, for, for doing bad things, why isn't God punishing other people for, you know, why, why is God allowing evil to flourish in other parts of the world? Let's not be that narcissistic. Our forgiveness is complete in what Jesus has done for us. But I want us to be really clear on this because I think that this is helpful. Forgiveness of sin does not equal, I should have made that bigger so people could actually see it. Forgiveness of sin does not equal no consequences of sin. The reality is, is that as we have done wrong, we have to deal with the consequences of that. And, it, and, and, and we may be forgiven of that sin, but we still have to deal with the reality of the situation that we have brought to bear. That's what mature 
people begin to realize, if I steal a bunch of money from the church, which I cannot do, I don't think that there's any possible way for me to steal a bunch of money from the church unless I, like, like rob them at gunpoint after the service. Like, I, there's just no way for me to do that. But if I stole a bunch of money from the church, you guys could forgive me, but you're not going to give me my job back, right? You're not going to let me keep being your pastor after I'm like, oh, I'm sorry about that. Well, we forgive you. Sure, here you go. That's not the way, the consequences of that, you are completely right in forgiving me and also right in saying, but the consequences of that are you cannot work here anymore, right? If, if I have spent all of my money foolishly, right? If I have just, if I have just like thrown it away on things that don't matter because I was trying to fill some hole in here with like shiny things that I can buy. So I run up credit card debt. I like, I still have to pay that. You know, and I can repent to God of, of like I tried to replace affirmation that I should have sought in God with, in buying things, and God will say, "Yes, I forgive you of that, but you still have to pay back your debts." That's the reality of that. The consequences of our sin still exist. If I mess up my marriage, my wife can forgive me, but I still have to wrestle with the consequences of that. Okay. And the, and the difference between being people who follow the Lord and being people who, who, who don't follow the Lord is that we can deal with the consequences of our sin still in joy, trusting that redemption is taking place. The difference with us is not that we have the consequences of our sin eliminated in this life, but that we approach the consequences of our sin in joy, trusting that God is going to use this for his own good and for his own glory and for our, to make us stronger and more mature. Um, this happens all the time. We live in, uh, and I, 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 we live in one dimension of time. I can only move forward in time. Not all, we can't, I can't go back to this morning when I knocked over my French press and broke it and then I wasn't able to make coffee at home this morning. Like, I can't go back and fix that. I can only move forward in time. So, you have done and you have experienced things in the past that were sinful and wrong and nothing is ever you can't go back and, and change that. It's already gone. And, and if was, there are times when someone has sinned against you and nothing will ever make that right. Okay? But the redemption of Jesus doesn't move just forward in time. The redemption of God, like a wave, flows backward through time as well. So at the moment we forgive, at the moment we repent, at the moment we move past our sin, the redemption of God, at the moment that we, that we begin to deal with the consequences of our sin and walk forward in maturity, the redemption of God flows backward through time and changes that event. It doesn't make it right, right? It doesn't make it good. It doesn't mean that it was ever not sinful. But what it does is that redemption flows backward and changes that so that it becomes true what Paul said in Romans, that God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Sin never becomes not sin. But sin becomes part of what God has used to form us form us because of... becomes part of what God uses to form us because of his own work in our lives. And And when we talk about and, and this is something that I think is also really important to mention here. We talk about the wrath of God, and there's two kinds of wrath of God that we see in the Bible. There's the active wrath of God. I'm going to rain down fire and brimstone. And we see that in the Bible. We see the active wrath of God where he's like, I'm going to, ah, uh, you did wrong. I'm going to, you know, uh, in the book of Acts, he makes like worms fill a person's body, and then he explodes from the inside out. That's weird. Um, God does that sometimes, okay? What's much more common 
throughout the Bible, though, is the passive wrath of God, where God says, okay, have it your way and see how that goes. So the wrath of God more often in our world, I believe, is much like it is in the Bible, that the wrath of God is visited on us by God saying, okay, have it your way, see how that goes. And we find ourselves making bad choices that hurt ourselves, that hurt other people, that damage the world that we're trying to build around us. And God says, okay, yeah, that's what happened when I let you do that on your own. Are you ready to, are you ready to follow me now? The passive wrath of God is being used by him to bring us back and to recognize him for who he is and to be who we were created to be. And this is the core, right? Because all of this boils down to this basic question, is God good? Because I know and I've encountered lots of people that would love to get rid of God if they could. Like if they could, if they could turn the switch that was like that to make them an atheist, they would do that, right? They would look, oh, okay, I will, there, there's a switch, flick that off, and now I can just go on with my life because I don't have to deal with that stuff anymore. But I talk to lots of people that are like, I can't get rid of the God thing. I can't turn that switch off. But I don't believe for a second, given the circumstances of my life, that God is good. It doesn't feel like it. There is no evidence in my life of God's goodness. I don't see it. I don't hear it. I don't recognize it around me. You can't show it to me in the circumstances of my life. And the wonderful music that you guys sing to make you feel open and warm and and confirms the truth of who God is, that just leaves me feeling empty. I've heard that from people. That's a, a question that we need to answer. And I believe that... And I believe that... When someone says to you, is God good? You can't... Sorry, I went the wrong way. You can't... There we go. When someone asks you the question, is God good? You can't give them a a pat answer. You can't just be like, yes, of course. Moving right along. It doesn't... You have to recognize that there's deep pain happening here. But also in the midst of this, we recognize that, that, that we have a reality that we can show someone a glimpse of and that we can have a reality confirmed in us and say, look, I don't know what you're experiencing. I can't possibly imagine what you're experiencing. But this is what I've experienced. That when I was lost, when I had no idea who I was or why I was here, when, when I couldn't think of a reason to get up in the morning, uh, or, or even to, and, and when I debated whether or not I should go on living or not go on living, I went to this book and it confirmed to me things that were true that resonated within my heart. And I said, okay, God, I'm going to trust you right now. I'm going to have faith that this feeling that I'm having is temporary. I'm going to have faith that the circumstances that I'm experiencing are temporary. I'm going to have faith in your goodness in the absence of evidence of your goodness. And very quickly, very quickly, I found myself noticing, like Paul, different things. Where Paul says in Romans 5, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I know what it's like to ask yourself the question, is God good. But on the other side of that, I can say that I know that there is hope for tomorrow. And it's because I have faith in what Jesus has done. And I have faith in what Jesus is doing. Sorry. We have peace 
Because that spirit that was removed from Saul, as we saw in the beginning of the story, that the spirit of God left Saul, the spirit of God of goodness and peace has been poured into us. And when we are filled with the spirit of God, there is no room for anything else. It's been poured into those who know and follow Jesus. And because of this, there's no room for for, for, uh, those other things to creep in. For those of us who... For those of us who believe this is what comes from the Lord, that we see the circumstances of our life, and even when they are, they, they appear to be tearing the world to pieces, when there is no hope for us, when, when, when we don't have evidence of God's goodness around us, and we, and we look in the news and we just say, the world is chaos and insanity, how possibly is this going on? We are left with a choice. Do we believe in the promises that God has made to us, or do we not? We have a choice of, of faith. Am I going to have faith that God is living and active in this world or is he not? Am I, am I going to have faith that, that what I need has been provided for in Jesus has not? Or, or it has not? And then from this faith, we're left with another choice. Can we live in that spirit of rah, like Saul was, that spirit of hurt, of chaos, of, of evil, of mischief? Or are we going to live in peace and grace and hope? And, and, and it doesn't feel like a choice. It feels like something that happens to you. But the reality is it is a choice. It's a choice to turn your attention to the Bible. It's a choice to turn your attention to other people who are giving you hope. Or it's a chance to turn your attention to people whose, heart, uh, whose hearts pull you in other directions. Uh, I have a very um, stupid but apt illustration for how faith works most of the time. And uh, for those of you who have heard it before, I apologize that you're hearing it again. But uh, I, uh, I, I, once, I was once doing a sermon series, Renee and Jake might have been there for this, where I told this, it's a story takes about two minutes, and, uh, and I told this story uh, for the first two minutes of my sermon for 12 weeks in a row. And, uh, and I really enjoyed that, and it made other people mad. So I'm sorry if you're hearing it another time, but... Um, but faith often works like this. Do you guys know how far it is from the pyramids at Giza to the nearest Kentucky Fried Chicken outlet? The distance in yards? Anybody know that? The answer is 100. It is 100 yards from the pyramids at Giza to the nearest Kentucky Fried Chicken outlet. Now, first time I knew that question was in 1996. Because it was a trivia question at the Smuggler's Jug in Charlottetown, Prince of Rhode Island. I was there for pub trivia, and uh, and it was one of the questions that you could, that, that you could ask. And, and, and the information just stuck in my head. I was like, "Wow, that's a pretty amazing thing. To, that's a pretty amazing thing to know. I did not expect that." And then I had friends who who went on a uh, a cruise and they went to Egypt and they visited the pyramids of Giza. And my and uh, and, and my and my friend Ryan stood at the pyramids of Giza turned around and took a picture of the uh of the, the the kfc 100 yards away and then emailed it to me and i was extremely excited because of all of a sudden this thing that i had just heard about faintly like new as like a trick in a in a in a guinness book of all of a sudden this was like confirmed in this picture that i knew someone who had been there who had walked from it. And some point in my life, this has not happened yet, but at some point in my life, I'm, this is one of the things that I'm committed to. I'm going to visit the pyramids of Giza, not to visit the pyramids at Giza. They're just big rock structures. I want to go to the KFC so I can go to that KFC and buy a bucket of chicken and eat of that bucket of chicken and share of that bucket of chicken with all of the people that are around me. Faith often 
most of the time works like that. And I know it sounds stupid, but the truth is that there's sometimes that hope and faith in what Jesus is doing in this world feel like some just information that you've heard at some point in time that like, it's true because a book tells me it's true. But I, and then all of a sudden you're like, and then sometimes the only way that you have it is like, well, I've got a person in front of me that I trust. I believe in them. I believe that they're not lying to me. And they're telling me that it's true, that they stood there and they said, no, hope is right there. I saw it. It's real. You can trust it. And then there's other times when that hope is something that you feel and you, you're experiencing yourself because you've walked into the hope store and you've got a bucket of hope and you're sharing that from that bucket of hope with the people around you. That is the reality of how faith works most of the time. Now, all of us are going to make the transition back and forth between all of those things. But it's a choice for all of us to have. No matter, no matter where we are in that spectrum, are we still going to trust it? Because God's faithfulness does not depend on how much we are able to believe in him. God's faithfulness does not depend on how many yards we are away from the truth of the hope in him. His faithfulness is good to us all the time. So are we going to choose to live in peace and grace and hope and allow the suffering that we experience to rather than crush our faith and break us to the point where we say God is not good? Are we going to allow it to build in us perseverance and character so that we can instead be the people who bless the world with our hope? Let's pray together. God, you are good. You are good and your love endures and you are good all the time. And we recognize even today on Thanksgiving that it is difficult to recognize that you are good all the time. There are times when we feel dismayed, when we feel lost, when we feel abandoned, when we feel rejected, and we don't know how to deal with the reality of the world in which we live, and we don't know how much of it is our own fault, how much of it is, is, is your fault, how much of it is the fault of the people around us. And, and in the midst of those times, in the midst of the, 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 the tumult and, and the confusion that is within us, we ask that your voice would come clear to us, that we would hear you clear, clearly saying, in me you find your hope. We would hear your voice saying, I know the plans that I have for you. Plans to give you hope and a future. We would hear your voice clearly saying, I am good all the time. We ask that we would carry that with us as we go from here today. That we would be able to share this good news with each other in the world. And that we would not be intimidated by the circumstances of this world. But that we would find our hearts drawn clearly and more fully to you. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.